the Master Tavern Keeper's History of the Old World. weather seems to have calmed down a bit now, thank the gods. So, Heinrich, in your telling of the uh, tale of Marco Colombo, we'd reached the point at which Giovanni and a full two-thirds of Marco's sailors had mutinied and absconded with all the treasure, as well as the expedition's pay chest, just to uh, rub a bit of salt into uh, Marco's wound. That must have been uh, quite the blow. Ah, yeah, yeah, but uh, to be honest, mutiny had been on the cards ever since the encounter with the Kraken. If you recall, Marco had split up the Skaven prisoners in the wake of the beast attack, so each ratman was held on a different ship. Their endless squealing drove everybody to exasperation and sowed the seeds of dissent, which Giovanni was happy to tend, water, and then rape. By the time of the mutiny, the men had had just about enough of discomfort. And now they were ostensibly rich men, they wanted to go and play. The mutineers took the Nino, Giovanni ship, and the Bimbo. <laughs> ah, I mean the Lamacopia, hmm. uh, my uh, grandpapa's vessel. They loaded it with as many pearls and other riches as they could fit in, and then, setting sail before the sun got low, they were able to avoid running into Marco's remaining ship as it came back from patrolling the waters up the coast. But, although this setback was great, Marco's spirit was not broken. His deal with the lizardmen still stood, and if he was able to deliver up a victim to sacrifice for Sotek, their serpent god, and return any valuable stolen lizardmen artifacts, then he would once more be showered in precious pearls in recompense. With this in mind, he formulated a plan to rebuild his fortune. Now, a continuous thorn in the side of the Lizardman Empire was the north port of Skeggy, up on the isthmus between Lustria and Nagaros. And our dear Master Tavernkeeper here told us all about the port in detail earlier. Marco felt this was a good place to go and find both victims and treasures. The only problem was he did not know exactly where it was. The original map he had received from my grandpapa all those years ago in the port of Norton did indeed have Skeggy marked on the map, but as Marco had sailed up and down the uh, nearby coast of Lustria, he had realised that uh, the map was uh, not exactly accurate. Ah, yes. The art of map making is indeed very difficult, as we mere men are stuck down here on the ground. The best map makers I know are the dwarves. They have some amazing contraptions that allow them to float up in the clouds. But they guard their maps as closely as they guard their gold. So, 
we mere men must struggle along with what we've got. Our eyes and our imaginations. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. The leader of my own mercenary band, the dwarf Sven Hammerhelm, is a very knowledgeable but also very secretive dwarf, who will only share snippets of his hoard of wisdom if it is absolutely necessary. Ah, such are the predilections of those that dwell in the dark, I am afraid. Ah, it is fine. Each to their own. Zoviso back to Marco. He and my grandpapa oversaw the refitting of their remaining ship for his new role as a pirate hunter. The mutineers had taken a great deal of the cannon shot and kegs of powder from the expedition's stash, and this meant that Marco's men only really had enough ammunition to run uh, about half a dozen cannons. The remaining cannons were rolled off the boat so as to lighten it. Marco hoped that this would allow their uh, Tylean ship even greater maneuverability so as to uh, chase down the slippery Norse longships. Ah, I see. And, to be honest, the mercantile vessels of Tylea are already very quick on the water when compared to their counterparts in the fleets of Britonia and the Empire. The way they have arranged the masts and sails is similar to the vessels of the Arabian Corsairs, making them very nimble and also ideal for long voyages, as they're uh, not dependent on a uh, tailing wind. It really is an impressive design. This also means that they are a joy to sail and can run rings around many other boat types. I'm sure lightening them even further could only increase their prowess. Ah, yeah, yeah, indeed. That was Marco's hope, at least. While the ship was being refitted, which took several weeks actually, Marco had his men practice throwing their grappling hooks and shooting their crossbows from dawn till dusk. He did not want to think his opponents remember. He wanted to board them and take their treasures and then take the sailors themselves prisoner. Ah, well, I've been there and been on the receiving end of that. And, I can assure you, it's not as easy as it sounds. Ah, no doubt. But before the Tylians' uh, preparations were complete, and they set sail towards where Marco suspected Skeggy lay, fate took matters into her own hands. As preparations reached their conclusion, one of Marco's sailors spotted a trio of ships sailing past the island. The seamen sounded the ship's bell that uh, sat at the top of the uh, tall watchtower and alerted the others. Marco raced to the base of the wooden structure, his large Arabian telescope slung upon his back, and quickly ascended to the top. What? What have you spotted? The sailor pointed out to sea, and Marco trained his telescope upon the vessels. As soon as he brought them into focus, he saw two smaller ships flanking a larger one, and each bore the distinctive large striped square sail employed by the Norse. Now, Master Tavernkeeper, you've spent a good amount of time amongst the Norse. 
Perhaps you can tell us some more about these uh, vessels. I'm afraid my knowledge is somewhat um, limited. Ah, yes, I most certainly can. Well, the two smaller ships were long ships, although the Norse I knew called them wolf ships. And they are crewed by the bottom rung of Norse society. More often than not, thralls. Despite their lowly status, though, these men are as bloodthirsty as the rest of the Norse. Indeed, sometimes more so. Many relish the chance to swap the powerless fear that comes with being a slave for the heady excitement of war and battle. And the majority of most war fleets are made up of these ships, with the thralls too making up the bulk of the fighting power of each fleet itself. The larger vessel was probably a king ship. The crews of these ships are uh, made up of a cross-section of the rest of Norse society, all under the command of a particular chieftain, or Jarl, as they're called in Norse. They typically comprise of such diverse types as the uh, shape-shifting Ulfvjörner, crazed berserkers, as well as the uh, Jarls, loyal bondsmen and elite Huskarls. Now... If you ask these men primarily what they were, be it a sailor or a warrior, they would definitely say that they're warriors first and sailors second. Now, I don't mean that they are poor sailors. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Norse, from babe and bairn to warrior and wise men, are amongst the most accomplished seafarers in the old world, even rivaling the elves of Ulthuan and Nagaroth. No, what I mean is that their heart is on the battlefield. The sea is merely the means by which they get from one battle to the next. Blood is their currency, and they take and spend it with wild abandon. Oh, thank you, Master Tavernkeeper. Once more, your knowledge has enriched the conversation. Truly, you are a treasure. Oh, why, uh, why, why thank you, Heinrich. You are a silver-tongued devil, if ever there was one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm, uh, I shall uh, take that as a compliment. Thank you. But anyway, please continue. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zofizo, uh, as Marco rallied his men to board the ship and catch the Norse, a dark shadow suddenly loomed over the Italians, blocking out the sun. As everyone looked up, they saw the silhouette of a pterodon swooping down to land. The men quickly scampered away, scattering to leave Marco to face the beast alone. Upon its back, he saw the familiar visage of the skink interpreter, Huini Pachutli. With the sailors dispersed, the skink set his riding beast down on the makeshift key by the ship, and leapt from its back. My friend, my friend, what an honor to... Not coming for pleasantries, Marco Colombo. Thieves blight this land. Truly, this is the foretold time of tribulations. Ah, indeed. No time, warm blood. Look to the sea. Have you seen them? See, see. We were about to move to intercept them as you arrived. Good. I shall not keep you a moment longer than necessary. But you must know this first. This morning, a 
Caradon rider from Itza arrived in Talax, bringing word that the sacred temple city of the hermit lords, Axolotl, has been desecrated by the warm bloods of polluted Skeggy. The very same ones that plough through the seas before our eyes yonder. The chameleon skinks that kept silent vigil in the jungle surrounding the empty city, of course, engaged the interlopers. A single survivor was able to bring news to Itza that the meditations of the hermit lords had been disturbed. Many pterodon and lipodactyl riders were immediately sent to waylay the raiders, but the Norse had already managed to retreat away to their ships and were sailing back up the river of Querveza towards the sea. They bore many precious artifacts with them. You must retrieve these for us. Ah, 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 ah. With a pleasure. In his mind's eye, Marco could already see the mound of pearls he would receive for taking the Norse heads. <laughs> ah, I've no doubt. By the way, what was the name of the city the Norse raided again? Axolotl. Uh, Vi. Ah, I thought so. Your description got the cogs in my groggy memory whirring. I've actually heard a few stories about it during my time in Skeggy from the uh, adventurers who'd been there. Oh, really? Tell us more. Well, the city, also known as the Star City, has strange pyramid temples topped with impossibly tall pillars that stretch up into the sky, right? Yeah, yeah, that is the one. You know your stuff, Master Tavernkeeper. But uh, that is about all that uh, I know, though. Ah, well, I have heard a little bit more as it happens. Apparently, each of those pillars is made from an impossibly hard ancient stone, and atop each sits a lone slan mage priest, each deep in an unending meditation, their attentions fixed upon a distant celestial object. They are apparently helped in this task by a protective sphere of energy which shields them from everything outside it, be that bad weather or airborne predators. Apparently, these slan do not even eat, but instead gain sustenance through their entirely magical means. Exactly what the hermit lords await or seek in the distant stars is a mystery though. However, I have also heard a couple more tidbits with regards Axolotl from an altogether different source, the Arabian scholar Ibn Jalaba. He stumbled across mention of it during his studies in his time in Zlatlan and related it to my tutor and I as we travelled around the Southlands together. Ibn said that he encountered an oblique reference to hermit mages on a fragment of an ancient plaque of the Old Ones that he found half buried in the depths of an ancient pyramid temple in Zlatlan. Ibn was unaware of the uh, hermit mages of Axolotl, by the way, 
and it was only when I resided in Skeggy that I heard of the inhabitants there, and remembered Ibn's words, and was able to join the dance. Anyway, this particular plaque fragment mentioned that the role of the hermit mages was to commune with a dormant, celestial entity called Dracothian, in an attempt to wake him before the time of Exodus. As to what either of these mean escapes my understanding, though. Oh, intriguing, but uh, I'm sorry, it means nothing to me, Nisa. I'll have to mention it to my colleague, the uh, magical Magnus Zabrite on Zamorozor. Perhaps he can uh, make some sense of it. Zoviso, I'm afraid the latrine is calling me again. But before I go, I will leave you with this. At Huini Patrutli's words, Marco bade his men board their ship, haul anchor, and go to engage the Norse. Marco was under the impression that he was off to fight some opportunistic, weak little Norse leader, but uh, this was not the case. No, instead, he was about to directly attack the infamous, the notorious Norse Jarl, Vegir the Sacrificer. What? The bloodthirsty Jarl, whose reign of terror on the Sea of Claws was only ended by King Wirren of the Ropsmen. Yeah, yeah. You know your Kislevite history, all right. Zoviso, I'm sure you'll find the fight between Marco and Vegir equally as fascinating. But first, please excuse me. 